we learn by doing. We can sit in the classroom and be instructed on how to do something, but it's not until we get our hands on it that we actually do it, that we apply what we've been learning, that it becomes 3D in our life. It becomes memorable. No doubt if you've ever known someone who served in the trades, uh, the best way to learn is through apprenticeships, where someone younger learns from someone older. Many years ago, when I served in the plumbing trade, we would get young apprentices, some of which came from some of the top technical schools in the nation. They were very knowledgeable about all the intricacies of vast plumbing systems, but they couldn't carry out the most basic tasks. Why? Well, because they had only small practicums. They spent most of their time in the classroom learning theories rather than applying the principles of everyday life. They had to learn how to navigate challenges and difficulties when engineers would put things in the wrong places and we would have to work through the strategies and come up with a solution to the problem. It was by learning how to do it, physically doing it, that they learned the craft and trade better. This is true of any activity that we take. We learn by doing. Whether it's learning how to be a teacher, you learn in the classroom. You grow as you teach, as you educate. Uh, No doubt, for many of you that are in the education system, the way you teach today is not the way you taught when you began. You've grown, you've modified, you've adapted, you've overcome, even as the generations perhaps have changed and the millennials have given way to Generation Z and the way students approach education and learning is different and so you have to adapt and overcome these challenges. We learn by doing. And this is no different than Jesus and his disciples. The word disciple, which is so familiar to us in discipleship and other verbs like discipline, are quite familiar to us. But in our minds, because of our own theological persuasion, because of our own tradition here as Southern Baptists, we often envision discipleship as a classroom. We all remember training union when we would come back on Sunday night after a long morning and we would have discipleship training or training union where we would learn how to be a disciple and we would sit in classrooms. And so for so many of us, discipleship is a classroom. But for Jesus, discipleship was lived out in everyday life as he ate and drank, as he walked and prayed, as he lived life with his disciples. Even in our passage this morning, we are beginning to see what it means to follow Jesus. And Luke here, in writing this orderly account, is beginning to shift in his structure. He's drawing an end to Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And as he does, the attention of Luke, the writer, begins to focus in on the disciples on those who would be commissioned by Jesus to take the message of Jesus to the nations. And so, as he begins to shift the camera to focus in on the disciples, Jesus is seen throwing his disciples in impossible situations so that they can learn by doing. 
And that's how you and I, as we will see, learn to trust Christ through everyday life. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. I invite you to turn there if you've not done so already. Luke chapter 9. And we're going to consider this morning verses 1 through 20. Now again, these chapters and verses are, are arbitrary. In other words, they were added later. They're not original. And therefore, sometimes we have to break in the middle of a conversation or in the middle of a scene. And, uh, and that's what we're going to do this morning. Chapter 9 is really one whole unit that we're going to split into two parts about Jesus' identity. His identity begins to come into focus. It becomes clear, and the pinnacle part of this, which is where we'll end today, on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. This is the peak of the chapter. Uh, as Luke is laying out the story, this, this, the camera focuses in on Jesus, on his disciples serving him, and it becomes very evidently clear to the disciples they're beginning to get a glimmer of who he truly is. For the reader, no doubt we're in a different position. We know who Jesus is. We know he is the Christ. And so it is somewhat of an awkward perspective for us, but hopefully helpful to consider this morning. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whatever they do not receive, or wherever they do not receive, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had returned, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and they took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, and blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, the, one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Well, friends, as we consider our passage this morning, 
I hope that it becomes evidently clear the main idea that Luke has for us. This text reveals the identity of Jesus. You'll be reminded that as Jesus went through his itinerant preaching ministry in Galilee, he would often tell those that he had healed to be quiet about it. You see, he didn't want to whip up the crowds and the towns into a frenzy, thinking that this king had come and would finally and fully deliver them from Roman captivity. He didn't want them to think that he was a populist, one who was for the people and therefore confused about what his true mission was. It was only when Jesus was in non-Jewish territories in Gentile lands, like the healing of the the demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes, that he said, go and tell your friends and family what God has done for you. Because they didn't have the wrong expectations about the coming of Christ. No different to today than the misconfusion and misinformation that's often spoke about centered around the second coming of Christ. Well, Jesus dealt with that also in his first coming. But our passage this morning reveals this truth that Jesus is the Christ. The one sent by the Father to deliver God's people from their captivity to sin and to usher in the kingdom of God. These are all true things, however, the timing would be different than the Jews expected. And so this morning, I hope, is that we walk away with a better understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Christ of God. That this confession of Peter that ends these verses is what the whole chapter is about, and particularly these verses before us this morning. And so this morning, I want just to look at three points, three main ideas. Number one, the mission of Christ. We see in verses 1 through 9 that Jesus, the Christ, has a particular mission. He is bringing about his kingdom in a particular way, a unique way, an unexpected way. Secondly, in verses 10 through 17, in the feeding of the 5,000, we see the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is sufficient. We need not look for another He alone will provide everything we need in our lives. Lastly, in verses 18 through 20, as we hone in on Peter's own confession, who do you say that I am? As he confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God, we walk away seeing the exclusivity of Christ. In other words, if he is the Christ, he's the one and only Christ. We ought not look for another Christ. He is the one who will deliver us from our sin. So this morning, I want us to look at these three points. The mission of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, and the exclusivity of Christ. We're told here in verses 1 through 9 that Jesus sends his disciples out on their very first mission. No doubt, they perhaps were chomping at the bit a bit. They were excited to go out. Um, But he sends them out, doesn't he? in a very peculiar way. Number one, we see that they are empowered for ministry. Jesus here in this scene is empowering his disciples to do ministry. In other words, he is giving them authority to accomplish. Well, what authority? 
His authority, the authority that he has, he's handing over to these disciples. Look with me what he says. The twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now for you and I that live after this era and period of, God, of redemptive history, we wonder and we kind of think, well, why don't we see these things today? Well, this is a unique period in the life of God's people where this power to exercise demons and to heal those who were sick was a seal, a sign, that the, the message that they were communicating was authentic. In other words, when they exercised demons and when they healed sick people, it proved that their master, named Jesus, was the Christ of God. It verified to the people that he had indeed sent them. Look with me there at verse 2 when it says that Jesus sent them. This is where we get the word apostle from. Uh, to send someone, uh, that's where the, it comes from the Greek, apostle. An apostle is one who is sent out as one who has authority, as a messenger for the king. We need to see that apostolic ministry was authorized and empowered by King Jesus. That they had authority to speak on behalf of Jesus. I've said it this way often to you, that when you read the apostles' teaching, which is the books of the New Testament, this is the apostles' teaching, when you read the apostles' teaching, it comes with the same authority as if Jesus of Nazareth was speaking it to us. That though it might be written by one of the apostles, it still comes with the same weight and authority as if Jesus himself said it. That is why we believe that all of the books of the New Testament and Old Testament are the inspired, infallible Word of God. Well, notice here as Jesus sends out his disciples that he sends them out in a peculiar way. They're about to go on a lengthy missionary journey. The very first that they've ever been on alone. It will be their first solo mission. Now, here in Luke's gospel, we are told that they are sent out just the twelve. In other gospel accounts, there were many more added to that. But notice what he says there in verses 3 through 5. He tells them not to take anything with them. Not to take anything with them. Now, for you and I who live in the modern age, this seems as if, um, sure, we could, you know, rough it, if you will. If I, need, if I ran into any problems, we could just run by the store and purchase things that I need. The point here is that Jesus' disciples are to rely on those whom the Word was preached to. We're beginning to see an early fingerprint of gospel ministry. That God's people will provide for those who regularly preach and teach the Word. That God's people will support the missionaries who go out and evangelize and share the gospel with unreached people. You wonder, you ever, you ever pause and think, well, why is it that we pay a pastor to preach the Bible to us? I mean, couldn't we just gather a group of men together each week and do a sort of rotation? Well, friend, do you understand the reason we do it is because we've been commanded to do it. 
The Bible commands the people of God to support those who preach the Word. This is what Paul reveals to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says to them, those who labor in the preaching and teaching of God's Word are worthy of, he says, double honor. In other words, the church ought to provide for those who preach the Word. And we see a a glimpse of that, don't we, here? I think also we come to understand that these disciples weren't to make a living, uh, an, an enormous living, off of their ministry. This is what we see here also in verse 4. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. In other words, they weren't to go to house to house. If, if they arrived at the first house and, and they were received hospitality there, they weren't to say, oh, hey, I want to go across the street. The Joneses, they've got it going on. They've got a pool over there and a really nice little uh, uh, quaint place. I think I'm going to go across the street. No, no, they were to stay where they were. They, they weren't to, to step up, if you will, and, and make more off of the gospel ministry. They were to rely on those who received the gospel and they were not to exploit them. Lastly, we see here in verse 5, they were to condemn those who reject the gospel. And whatever they do not receive you, wherever they don't, when you leave that town, shake the dust off of you. It was a condemnation of those who rejected Christ. It is a reminder to us in a number of things. Number one, there will be those who reject it. And we ought not to be discouraged by it. Even the early disciples confronted people who had nothing or wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Well, we also see in this section this response of Herod. That Jesus' disciples, apostles now, engender questions about Jesus. Uh, No doubt as they were spreading out around the, the Galilean region and through the Judean countryside, as they were their ministry was expanding and they were really getting a bigger and bigger foothold, it drew the attention of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod was a fake king, if you will. He was a king who had no power and no authority. He was just a middleman uh, for the people between the people and Rome. And Herod having no real authority and will kind of uh, be and is quite sinful, Uh, we are told here in this particular passage uh, that he questions about Jesus. Now, Luke doesn't give us all the details about John's life, John the Baptist, but we do find in this passage that John has now been beheaded. Well, who beheaded John was Herod's second wife, who was a wicked, wicked queen. And she beheaded because she, because John, rather, confronted her in her sin. All of this is to understand that Jesus has a particular way in which he is expanding his kingdom. And he's expanding his kingdom through disciples. Friend, this is true for us today. Jesus' kingdom expands not through armies and conquest, but through the subtlety of the preaching of the gospel. I mean, you think about it. Armies and, and World powers can't get into other people's countries, but Christians can. The gospel can. The gospel gets into places where man's power and money and wealth and prestige and military might cannot get into. And suddenly, the gospel erodes away the power of these great nations through the conversion of sinners into saints. 
Friends, the, the way the church grows is by you taking the gospel to your neighbors. So often our mindset is a come and see mindset. Church, we, we are not a come and see. This is not an entertainment portion of, of our church here. This gathering right here on the Lord's Day is for the church to edify the saints. And then we take the message to the world. We, we gather to scatter. That is what we see here in embryonic form in Jesus' early ministry. That the disciples weren't just to have a holy huddle together. It was warm and comfortable and cozy. Man, I just want to be with Jesus. No, Jesus said, get away. Get out of here. Go. Go show others what I've shown you. Friend, that is what we as a church need to be about, going and taking this message to those around us. If you've never shared the gospel with a lost person, friend, I wonder whether or not you're truly a Christian or not. Because we see right here, this is what it means to be a Christian. To take the gospel to lost people. To open our mouths and tell people about the wonder and the glory and the goodness of Christ. Perhaps you don't share that message because you've never truly experienced it. Because if you've truly experienced Jesus, you truly live with Jesus and dine with Jesus. We see also we ought to learn to rely on Jesus. Jesus teaches his disciples that they need to rely on him and the word. Don't take anything with you. Just go. Trust God. We'll provide. Well, they get a bit of a vivid illustration of that, don't they, in the next scene? We see in verses 10 through 17 the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ. We are told that upon the disciples' return, they came home celebrating all that they had done. I, I just want to look at verse 10. The whole, whole section hinges on this verse. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. Now, this isn't a proud statement. This isn't a, a statement of, look at how awesome we are. We are the best missionaries. We're glad you picked us. That's not the point that Luke is making here. The point, as we'll see, is that the disciples experienced the empowered ministry of the Christ, but yet their faith was still weak. They had experienced God's power. They had exercised demons. They had healed the sick. They did, not Jesus. They had seen Jesus do it over and over and over again. Thousands of people being healed. They saw the thousand legions of demons exercised from the men. They saw the power, but now that power was living through them. And they experienced the joy of a sick person coming to health again. Or, or, or an individual who was taken captive by demonic spirit being freed and having an entirely new life. They had experienced that. And they were excited to tell Jesus about all that had happened in their itinerant ministry. Well, as they returned, the crowds got word that the disciples were back, that Jesus was lit with them. And so Jesus gathered the crowds together and did what Jesus always does, and that is tell them of the kingdom of God that is coming. And of course, this story is the only miracle beside the re besides the resurrection 
that is recorded in all four Gospels. It's the only one. It demonstrates to you the significance in the mind of the apostles that this one event was the watershed moment in their ministry where they finally opened their eyes and and got to see the Christ, which is why Peter concludes the way he does at the end. And so they're in this vast countryside. They're in, we are told, a desolate place, and there's nowhere for them to eat. There is a sense in which Jewish hospitality is being pressured upon them. We've gathered this large crowd. How dare us not feed them? What a shame that would have been to this culture that Jesus not provide for his own crowd. Of course, they couldn't call up you know, Uber. They couldn't call up you know, DoorDash to come and deliver some food for them. They had to, to make up something for themselves. And, and of course, the apostles are exercising their own wisdom here, don't they? Jesus, send them away into the countryside. Let them go find lodging. Let them go find their own food. But Jesus finds this as an opportunity to what? We learn by doing, right? He says to them emphatically there, look with me, verse 13. But Jesus said to them, that is the twelve. You, emphatic, you give them something to eat. The language here is, is emphatic, that, that he, he is saying, disciples, you, it's your responsibility. I want you to solve this problem. Now, for some of us, we think, well, this is quite unfair. These are just ordinary men. How are they to solve this problem? They have just a, a, a meager rations here, a couple of fish and some loaves. How, how are they going to feed 5,000 men? plus women and children. A vast crowd is gathered here. Some of us focus so much on the number, we kind of miss the miracle. It really doesn't matter if there is 5,000 plus women and children. I mean, 5,000 is still a lot, right? I mean, this is 50, 500. It's still a vast miracle. You find them. You give them something to eat. You solve this problem. Now, now I, I, I want you to understand, and why I pointed out verse 10 to you, it's because Jesus here is trying to get them to remember what they just experienced. They healed sick people. They exercised demons. They had the power in them to solve this problem, but they didn't have eyes to see yet. And so Jesus tells his disciples to have them sit. Now I want you to notice here that Jesus says, disciples, you go get them to sit. And then when Jesus miraculously multiplies the the fish and the bread, Jesus doesn't serve it up. Who serves it up? The disciples serve it up. Why? He wanted them to have the picture in their mind of the miraculous multiplication and them taking it and giving it to the people. Is that not what you have experienced in in knowing Jesus? Someone has taken the bread from heaven, the manna from heaven, and given it to you. And then you received that manna from heaven. You believed upon Christ. And then what did you do? Then you took that manna from heaven and you gave it to someone else. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they would find all that they need in him that their power to do ministry 
would come from the sufficiency of Christ, that he was enough, that all they needed was Jesus. And notice here, verse 16, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before them. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. When you feast on Jesus, you leave satisfied. We've all been there, right? To a restaurant, that is. We've, it's got glorious reviews. People rave about it. We go, we eat, and we leave hungry. It's a disappointment. We ought never to leave hungry when we go and spend money on food. We eat until we're satisfied. Perhaps we eat too much. And it is a reminder that when you feast on Jesus, that he is enough, that he is sufficient, that he's all that you need. We see a, a glimmer, don't we, here, of even Jesus' behavior. Now, I want you to think, do you not think this would have rang in the ears of the apostles later in life? He took the bread after supper. He took the bread. He blessed it. And he broke the bread. And he gave it to them. Where have you seen this before? Well, we've seen this at the Lord's Supper. So I want you to imagine here for a moment, these disciples have experienced the feeding of the 5,000. Months later, they're going to be up in the upper room. Jesus is going to tell them about his death and his coming sacrifice. And they're going to hear those familiar words again. He takes the loaf. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he gives it to them. Friend, all of this is a, a sign of, of Christ's own provision of himself. When we see that as we'll find ourselves next week in the verses that follow. When Jesus speaks about the fact that he has come to give his own life. To be a ransom for the people of God. To be a sacrifice that he came to die the death we deserve. Friend, I just wonder this morning, where do you find other Jesuses. What I mean is, is where, where have you found in your life other things that are meant only for Jesus? Perhaps it's the leisure of life, the luxury of life. Perhaps it's entertainment. Perhaps it's friends. Perhaps it's family. Money, wealth, prestige, notoriety, education. And the list just goes on and on and on. Our, our world offers us tons of Christ, tons of saviors. We have saviors all around us. But what we need to learn as his disciples is that Jesus is enough. Friend, you could lose everything today. You could go bankrupt today. You could be homeless this afternoon, and Jesus would be enough, my friend. He would be. You could lose friends and family and home. You could lose everything in life. You could be like Job. Naked I came and naked I leave. And find that Jesus, oh, He is enough. Find that in Christ you have the provisions you need for life. Not only in the first scene there with providing for His disciples, but here in the feeding of the 5,000, we see that Jesus... He provides for His people. Do you doubt that? 
Perhaps you're facing some trial in your life, some financial difficulty, something in your life that, is, that, that you are finding lacking in resources. Perhaps it's sleep. Perhaps it's health related. Friend, do you find that if you would just come and rest in Christ, He will give you all that you need? I'm not here speaking of a miraculous healing or, or money falling from the sky, but, but rather a sense in which our satisfaction is found in Him, not in the things of this world. Well, thirdly and finally, we see the exclusivity of Christ. The question that has abounded for us for from the beginning of chapter 8 into chapter 9 is, who is Jesus? You'll remember the apostles when they were out on the ship with Jesus, and Jesus calmed the winds and the waves. They asked this, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey? And then in Herod's own question, he, he asked, well, what's the deal? Who is this guy? John, I beheaded. Who then is this? And then, in Jesus' two questions, he asks here in these verses. First, he asks the disciples, what do the crowds say? What's the word on the street about me? What are they saying down at the schoolyard? What does the popular crowds saying? And I want you to see something here that is profound. The world never gets Jesus right. Just the other day, I was in Publix. Life Magazine has this particular verse printed on the front in a picture of supposedly Jesus. Not only do they break the second commandment by printing a picture of Jesus, um, but we've got this picture of Jesus here, and, 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 and we're supposed to look at this and, and, and understand who Jesus is from the world. From the world will always get Jesus wrong. Look what, what, look what we find here. Who do the crowd say that I am? Verse 18. And the answer, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. You see, they were misinterpreting, misunderstanding, misreading Old Testament passages, and thinking that Jesus was one of these. No one had concluded that Jesus was the Christ. You see, it's because only by the Spirit can you confess Jesus as Lord. We ought not to look to the world to find the Christ. But look to Jesus' own example and his own revelation of him who is the Christ. And so we have here is that Jesus asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter responds, but you are the Christ of God. Now, of course, other gospel writers have a fuller confession that Peter has in this moment. Luke has a condensed form. It gets the main idea across. He's writing an orderly account, an account that was seen to help Theophilus understand and know the truth that he's come to believe. But he confesses that he is God's Christ, the one sent by God, the Christ. This is an Old Testament word that means Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the one that God had promised through Moses, through the prophets, a descendant of David, who would be a king over Israel, the Messiah. And so in Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ, he's confessing that he is the king who has come to save his people. And the point we understand here is that Jesus is exclusive. He is the only one. He is the only Savior. We need not look for another. 
It harkens back to John's question when John was in prison, when he called his disciples and sent them to Jesus, are you the Christ or should we look for another? Peter here is confessing that Jesus is the Christ. We need to stop our search. The search is over. We have found him. And this is what we affirm in this particular season of the life of God's people. Is that our king has come. We are saying that he is our king. And if Jesus is your king, then you're not. If Jesus is the king, he is the Christ, then you're not. You're not in charge of your life. You're not the king of your life. You don't get to make decisions for yourself anymore. You don't get to choose how you're going to order your life or what you're going to give yourself to. You gave your life over to someone else. His name is Jesus. Do you find Jesus exclusive? There is no other way given among men by which we must be saved, Peter confessed later in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He knew it. Jesus is the only way. And as Christians, how often we confess that, but then turn to good works. How often we confess that Jesus is enough, but turn to some duty that we've done in the church, some activity that we've participated in, some office that we've served in, some deed done in the flesh. Even perhaps this morning, your head is held higher because you're here. Oh, I'm not like all those other people. I came to church today. But friend, your attendance or your Bible reading, your prayer or your sacrificial giving, none of them merits eternal life. None of those things merits God's love for you. It's only Jesus, the Christ, the one who came to die the death you deserve, the one who lived the life you should have. As a Christian, our only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, His holiness, His perfection, being imputed to us by faith, and our unrighteousness being imputed to Him. Friend, I wonder, how do you answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you eyes to see and ears to hear. The answer found here in this particular passage. Friend, speak to a Christian friend around you to help you understand who Jesus is. Read Scripture and there discover that Jesus is the Christ of God who has come to save you from your sin, from the wreck of life you've made. But the glory is you could have trashed your life but Jesus still loves you. You could have made a wreck of all of your life, but Jesus still died for you. And if you will just turn and trust in Him, that He is the Christ, the King, to submit your life to Him, then you too can live an eternal life with Him. Next week we're going to consider this passage, but I want to end with it. 
Do you want to follow Jesus? Following Jesus leads to only one place. And that is a cross. Jesus tells his disciples, if you want to follow me, then you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and come after me. Jesus has only one place he's going, and that is Golgotha. And friend, you cannot hope to follow Jesus unless you go to the cross first and die to yourself and live in Christ by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace in Christ. We pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, I pray that we would have in our mind fixed this wonderful Christ, one who came and died for us and gave us life forevermore. Father, I pray this morning that we might learn to trust your plan and purpose for the church, your mission for this people, for your bride. We pray this morning that we might trust in the sufficiency of Christ. We need not look to ourselves or to any others, but to you alone. Father, I pray that we would find that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. There is not many ways, but only one way. Through the cross of Christ and his resurrection, there we will have life. Father, help us, we pray, for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. As we conclude our time this morning,